today is Ezekiel 14, verses 12 to 23. It's called, God's goodness is demonstrated by his righteous judgment of sin. And we're going to get a lot of application out of this message today. So I'll just pray we'll get stuck into it. Father, thank you for, Lord, your mercy and your grace. We thank you that you have given us the opportunity to meet together. And I just want to pray for the Mauritanius, a West African country where there's only 150 believers in the whole country and they're persecuted by everybody government, family, tribal groups, whatever, and it's illegal to be a Christian. And Lord, we just commit that country to you and pray that you will raise up more workers because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Lord, get Bibles into that country, cause there to be digital means of getting the Bible in their own language. And Lord, whatever is required to strengthen and support the Christians who are there, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's do a memory verse together. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Ready? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Sorry, just a bit of digression. I was just thinking about that um, country. Imagine being a Christian there. Just think about that and how easy we have it here. They have slavery in that country, and if you're not in the upper class, so to speak, you know, if you're not in the acceptable class, then you're a slave. And so if you're a Christian, you're a slave. So it's a big sacrifice to be a Christian there. So that's what it's all about, isn't it? Making up your mind to put Christ first. So... He's number one, and there's nothing that you wouldn't do for him, nothing you wouldn't give up for him. And that's a good lead into our revision from last week, from Ezekiel 14. I'm just going to read verses 2 and 6. These men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? And the answer there is no. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. So last week we saw that we can have idols in our hearts, and they can be unconfessed sin or hidden priorities, where you know it's so easy to, without even realizing it sometimes, make something more important than God. And that will cause us to not be relying on God for His strength, because we're not being led by His Spirit, and we will stumble into sin. The sin of the heart will lead to failing in other parts of our lives. We need to have our lives fully yielded to the Spirit if we're going to expect God to lead us. He won't force himself on us. He will only lead us if we are submitted to him. And I've kind of described it like this. If we don't give the Holy Spirit permission to direct and empower our lives, we'll be using our sinful nature, our flesh, to try and overcome our sinful nature. And have you ever tried like grabbing your shoelaces and trying to pull yourself up? That's kind of what it's like, yeah? It's impossible. You're trying to use evil to produce good. That's not going to work. 
Or you're trying to use mud to try and wipe off mud from your shirt. Like you've got a dirty shirt with a bit of mud on it. So what do you do? You get some more mud and try and wipe the mud off with mud. You're only going to get dirtier. The only way to fix this situation is to repent, to restore God to his rightful place as Lord, meaning the highest priority or the greatest love of our lives. So we live for him and not for ourselves. And we also saw that we need to guard our hearts so that my affections are not stolen or turned away from God. Things don't become idols in my life. The course of my life is determined by what or who I love the most. That's really important to remember. Okay. The course of my life is determined by what or who I love the most. I will naturally follow, obey, and willingly sacrifice what I love the most and despise everything else. And I've got Proverbs 4.23 from two different versions. It says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And for the New King James it says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for you hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So, is one way or the other. Where your treasure, so your heart will be, you'll go after that. That will be the course of your life. So, the conclusion from last week was we must be making a conscious and deliberate effort to be on the lookout for any intruders that would threaten my relationship with God, that would seek to steal my affections and so turn my heart from Him and take me down a wrong path. And I need to also be watching for things that have unconsciously become idols in my life and repent of them as well. And finally, just from for last week, the main point is that I need to remember that my whole purpose of existence is to... To love God more than anything else and everything else. Why? So I will bring glory to Him. The purpose of my life is to bring glory and honor to God. And I do that through putting Him first. If I put Him first and He's my greatest priority, my first love, then I will want to obey Him because I love what He loves and hate what He hates. And my first desire will be to please my Savior who loved me and gave Himself for me. Galatians 2.20 Now this week, We move on and finish off chapter 14. I've called this God's judgment on persistent unfaithfulness. No more mercy. That's what this first section is all about. So we've seen these judgments before. Famine, wild beasts, war, plague, pestilence and disease. So the four different types of judgments that God has already told us that he's going to send on the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And a quote here. From Wearsby, God had told Jeremiah to stop praying for the people because they were beyond hope. And you can see the references there, Jeremiah 7.16, etc. And now he would tell Ezekiel that the presence of three righteous men whom the Jews revered would not save the city of Jerusalem. And I think the main point here, the main lesson we can learn is that like any good parent with persistent rebellion or disobedience, God will say, enough is enough. That's it. We see that God's patience has limits. There will come a day, a time, when God's mercy gives way to judgment and his people will experience his divine discipline. Now, for us personally, we can think that we're getting away with things. We can do these 
you know, things that no one can see, or we can, even people can see, we think, well, nothing's happening to me, I can still do this. But what are we doing? We're despising God's patience and forbearance as he holds off his discipline and gives us more time to repent. Romans 2.4 And this section of scripture finishes with God showing his good purpose in all that he is doing. The evil escaping remnant would show the people already in exile that the inhabitants of Jerusalem were fully deserving of the severe judgment that was pronounced upon them. So we'll find out more about that as we go. Let's read Ezekiel 14, 12 to 23. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they empty it, and make it so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, only they would be delivered, and the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword on the land and say, Sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only themselves would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury on it in blood, and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, How much more shall it be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence, to cut off man and beast from it? Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out by the sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you, and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. There's a bit of a twist at the end of this story. Those last verses, you think, the remnant's coming out, they're going to bring comfort. It's not the kind of comfort you think. We'll explain that when we get there. So, verses 12 and 13 and 14. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord. So, you know, from the last few weeks, talking about false prophets, in verse 12 it says, The word of the Lord came again to me. So, Ezekiel was speaking God's words. He's not making it up. He's not coming from the desires of his own heart. He's not trying to please other people or impress other people. Verse 13, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. So, it's interesting. Why is he saying when the land sins against him? Well, <laughs> the land itself cannot sin. It's not a moral agent. 
but it is a source of blessing or cursing to the people it was given to, of course, the people of Israel. So if the people obeyed, God would use the land to bless them, but if the people disobeyed, the land would become a curse to them. Why do you think God did that? Why did God have this blessing, cursing, this physical blessing, cursing system going on? Well, I believe the people needed to know that they were out of fellowship with God. God is always faithful to honestly communicate the state of our relationship with him, good or bad. And at the end, of, as an application and conclusion, we're going to see how this works for us personally. But under the old covenant, God promised that if they were obedient, then he would show them his favor toward them by giving them physical blessings, and they included freedom from hunger, you know, good crops and abundance of food, freedom from wild beasts, they would not be attacked or overrun by lions and bears and wolves and dogs and all those things, Freedom from sickness, so no disease or pestilence among them. And freedom from war, they would have peace with their neighbours. But if they were unfaithful or disobedient, they would experience the opposite. So as a nation, all they had to do was look around and say, okay, what's going on? Are we out of fellowship with God? Or are we walking with God as a nation? And verse 13, persistent unfaithfulness. What does this mean? Well, the meaning of the Hebrew words translated persistent unfaithfulness is untrue, unfaithful, deceitful, disloyal, violating one's legal obligations, acting treacherously, one who commits adultery or infidelity that could be physical or spiritual against God. And it's used to describe the sin of Achan in Joshua 7.1 when he stole the devoted treasure that was devoted to God. And also in Numbers 5.12, when a wife committed an adulterous act, and they both occurred the death penalty. And a quote by Taylor, the meaning here is similarly of a land which by its unfaithfulness deserves the ultimate in punishment. So it's a treacherous, unfaithful people who are rebelling against God. I will cut off its supply of bread and send famine on it and cut off man and beast from it. So this is the first of the four judgments. Either the crops would fail, most likely because the Babylonians are going to wipe them out, you know, with a vast army with their horses and animals and their need for food. And all the people would suffer hunger in the predicted siege of Jerusalem when they're all shut in the city and they can't get any food. Now, verse 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves. It's interesting, isn't it? They would deliver only themselves. We're called to pray for people, right? To intercede for people. And in other parts of the Bible, God is looking for someone to stand in the gap to intercede on behalf of the people so that he wouldn't have to judge them. And Ezekiel 22.30 is a good one for that. Calling for people to stand in the gap for example, Abraham, David, Moses, Job, Samuel were all leaders and men of prayer who were able at times to prevent God's judgment from falling on those around them by the intercessory prayer. But here God is saying that even if there was a godly leader or intercessor to stand in the gap, it's not going to make any difference. God's patience is finished. The wickedness of the land was overwhelming. And it says in Jeremiah 5 6 that. Jeremiah couldn't find even one godly person in Jerusalem. That's how wicked the place was. And I think of it like this. Judah was like 
it was before the flood. The wickedness was everywhere, and their thoughts were evil continually. And God regretted that he had made them at all. <laughs> That's how sinful they were and how much they were grieving God. So, basically, that's what Jerusalem was like. I compare it to the pre-flood world, and they were ripe for judgment. Alexander has a quote, Jerusalem was more culpable than Sodom. A few righteous men would have delivered Sodom. Here, none could turn away the wrath. And Spurgeon says, The prayers of the greatest intercessors cannot avail if men persist in their unbelief. So, Noah, Daniel, and Job, why did God use these three men as examples? Well, they were all tested and they all proved faithful, but all of them only had limited success in the intercessory prayer. This is just my thoughts, okay? In the case of Noah and Daniel, the people they were praying for were in constant rebellion, persistent rebellion, like Noah. He was praying for the pre-flood world. How many people got saved? (laughs) Just him and his family, right? 120 years of prayer. The result? Eight people. What about Daniel? I imagine he would have been praying for his nation, but they still were defeated by the Babylonians. Job prayed for his children, but they were killed. And we're going to get into a bit later on that our salvation is our choice. So, no hope for Judah from the wild beasts in verse 15 and 16. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they empty it and make it so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, only they would be delivered and the land would be desolate. So imagine the lions, the bears and the wolves and the dogs and the snakes. You know, If there's no people around, they multiply rapidly. So the Babylonians have already come through. They've decimated the population. So there's no one living in some of the towns. What's going to happen to the population of the lions and tigers and wolves and things? Over the few years, they're going to explode. There's going to be so many of them. And it's going to be really dangerous for the rest of the people who remain to actually travel through those areas. And think of the shark situation today. We're not culling sharks. What happens? You know, you're scared to go to the beach. Now verse 16 says, Even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, only they would be delivered. There's a quote from Spurgeon here. In all the procedures of divine judgment, the principle of individual responsibility can never be relaxed. Hence, the need of personal piety, the absolute necessity that men and women should pray for themselves, that each one should repent for himself, that each one should believe for himself, and that each one should, in his own proper person, be born again by the effectual operation of the Spirit of God. No proxy in these matters is possible. (laughs) So while, yes, it is good to pray for people, and we're commanded to do that, ultimately, it's up to that person, isn't it, to pray to God and ask him to come into their hearts to forgive them of their sins. So that's the application. In the end, it's up to the individual to call out to God and receive salvation from God. It's the individual responsibility for each of us. 
Romans 10.13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for he will forgive generously. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Yeah. So for kids growing up in families, there's no grandkids in God's kingdom. They have to make their own choice. So encourage them to do that. Now the third section, No hope for Judah in war, verses 17 and 18. Or if I bring a sword on that land and say, Sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it. Even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they were delivered, neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. So now this is the third one, famine, wild beasts, and now war. The Babylonians would come and many would die in battle. And again, God is emphasizing that even if Noah, Daniel and Job were there praying, they'd only save themselves because these people were persisting in unfaithfulness. Point number four here, no hope for Judah in plague, verses 19 and 20. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury on it in blood and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel and Job are in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Okay, the fourth plague, disease. The natural consequence of famine and siege. And again, another reminder of the personal responsibility that we have for our own salvation and the fact that they are beyond hope. They have rebelled. Their heart has become too hard. It's very scary. Now, we come to verses 21 and 23. This is a bit of a twist. For thus says the Lord God, How much more shall it be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence, to cut off man and beast from it? Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you, and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem, or that I have brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. So, starting verse 21. How much more shall it be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem? Remember, things are already bad. There's already been two lots of exiles going to Babylon. But God here is saying it's going to get a lot worse. The false prophets, what were they saying? Oh, man, this is not God's will for you. Everything's going to get great. God's going to defeat the Babylonians. You will all go back to Jerusalem. No. God is saying, how much worse shall it be when Jerusalem experiences my four severe judgments. Now God is calling these severe judgments. He's warning the people. And on that point, they're his severe judgments, my four severe judgments. These are not the Babylonian judgments. These are God's judgments. The Babylonians are just a tool in God's hands. 
God was in control of the Babylonians. And after God used the Babylonians to discipline or punish many nations, they themselves were punished by God. Uh, Jeremiah 51 verses 7 and 8 says this, Babylon was a golden cup, and I've added there, of wrath in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drunk her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. And then the next verse says, Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her. So God used Babylon as his cup of wrath to discipline and destroy the nations around, and then he destroyed Babylon. They didn't escape their judgment. Now, there's an application here. God will allow evil people and circumstances to afflict us. Now, do you remember what the prophet Habakkuk said when God said that he was going to send the Babylonians? He was complaining. He was saying, God, our nation is falling apart. Our nation is corrupt. What are you going to do about it? And God says, I've got a plan. I'm going to send the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says, what? They're more wicked than we are. Why would you do that? So, likewise for us, God will allow evil people and circumstances to afflict us. But don't despair because God is using them for our good and God will judge and destroy them soon enough. We must be patient. So that gives us a different perspective on those who are persecuting us, right? The Babylonians were evil to the core. They didn't understand God's purposes or his heart. And motivating and enabling the king of Babylon was who? Satan himself. Isaiah 14, 1-23. They didn't understand that they were doing only what God wanted them to do. In fact, what God had enabled them to do. And despite them acting entirely according to their own free will, God used them to do his exact bidding. The Babylonians 100% meant evil for Israel, yet God used them 100% for good. It's amazing, eh? They're so evil, and in their own minds, they hate Israel, they want to destroy it. But what does God do? He turns it around and uses it for good. Now the church in the world, the application for us, John 17, 14-19, Jesus is praying for his disciples and he says, I've left them in the world and the world hates them. It's the ultimate, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good scenario. Like Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20. You know, when his brothers thought that Joseph, now their father had died, he was going to get back at them and get revenge. But Joseph said, no, no, it's not about that. What you meant for evil... God meant for good. He turned it completely around. Joseph could see that, yeah, his brothers genuinely hated him at one stage, but God used that for his good and to save many people alive at the same time. Now, for us, consider that God allows Satan to be the ruler of this world. Jesus says this in John 12, 31, 14, 30, 16, 11. And in Ephesians, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2.2 Consider also that Satan hates us with an intensity that we will probably never understand. He comes to kill, steal and destroy. 
Yet just like the Babylonians in Ezekiel's day, every time he tempts us, attacks us, lies to us, and tries to kill and destroy us, he can only do what God has allowed him to do. And what he has been allowed to do are those things which work for our good, causing us to grow into the image of Christ. And you can see Romans 8, 28 and 29. And I think to myself, when will Satan learn? Because everything he does to try and hurt us is actually for our good. It's an amazing thought that God can use something as evil as this world system that we live in, designed and maintained by Satan himself, to bring about good. It's a very strong testimony to God's incredible power and authority that he is definitely in control. Now, what does it mean for us? Well, Ezekiel and Jeremiah were basically telling the people in exile to submit and trust in God to accept their current circumstances as being God's best for them. And that's hard, isn't it? That our circumstances are best for us when we don't think they're the best, that we don't feel good. It's difficult. We must believe that God truly only allows good things to happen to us. Now, what's the definition of a good thing in the Bible? According to Romans 8, 28, 29, it's things that cause us to grow closer to Christ. Yeah? It's all about the perspective that we have. In contrast, the false prophets were telling the people that the hard times they were experiencing were not God's will for them. Their premise probably went something like, God loves you, so he will only allow good things to happen to you, meaning, in their mind, things that will make you feel better and enjoy life more. Therefore, the false prophets gave the people false hope by telling them that they didn't have to repent and also that God would defeat the Babylonians and everyone's going to go home and the story has a nice ending. Sounds great, but it's not true. So, just want to focus on this point here. We need to have this perspective that things that happen to us, they're all good things, yeah? Everything that happens to us is a good thing. I'm not saying that the sin that I choose to do is a good thing, but everything that happens to me that's out of my control is a good thing. Why? Because it's been allowed by God and its purpose is to conform us into the image of Christ. Now, you stand in eternity. What's the most important thing that you wanted to achieve in this world? To be conformed into the image of Christ. Yeah? There's no greater honor than to become like our Lord. Yeah? So, let's go on to verse 22. Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you, and you will see their ways and their doings. Now, David Guzik has a comment here to help to explain this. This is an unusual reference to a remnant because it does not seem to refer to a righteous remnant, but a wicked one. We understand this from the phrase, their ways and doings, which almost always had a negative meaning. Now, back in chapter 11, verses 14 to 20, we learn that God would not completely wipe out the nation, but would indeed leave a godly remnant, yeah? And the nation will continue. They would go back to the land of Israel. They would serve God, rebuild the temple, all those things. This here, in verse 22, is a different kind of remnant. It's an evil remnant, an unrepentant remnant. 
It's like God is allowing some of the very worst of the people to suffer through the siege and then be scattered throughout the surrounding nations. But their behavior is not going to change. They're going to be just as wicked and hard-hearted towards God at the end of the siege and as they go through the nations as they were before the siege. And they would therefore prove to the rest of the nation of Israel and the other surrounding nations that God did indeed do the right thing, that he was completely justified in pouring out his four severe judgments on the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So, again, this comfort is not the kind of comfort you'd expect. Oh, we've got some good, great people who survived. No, these are the wicked people. These are the proof that God's judgment was necessary. Now, a little story to help us understand. You go on holidays, okay, and you're away for four weeks. After a month, you get back, it's summertime, and your house stinks, and the inside of your freezer has turned green and black, you know, mold and that. It's probably happened to some of us, right? You naturally throw out everything and clean the freezer. However, to prove to the insurance company that you really did lose all that food because the freezer broke down, you post a sample of the rotten food to the insurance company as proof of your situation, and that you really did have to throw away all the food in your freezer. So, the insurance personnel would have no doubt that your freezer had broken down because of the mushy and maggoty rotten steak that is now stinking out their office, yeah? That's kind of like the idea that God is doing. He's getting the worst of the people and saying, this is the people I was judging. Here, have a look. So, this is a picture. He's demonstrating to the nation of Israel and all the surrounding nations that his severe judgments were just and fair and that they were in fact required because the people were so wicked and putrid in his sight. They were indeed as rebellious and evil as Ezekiel and Jeremiah had been describing them. Remember we've been through those chapters describing the sins of the people, the idolatry, the child sacrifice, the casting of spells, all those things. Psalm 9 is a good scripture. It gives us an understanding of this. Verses 16 to 18. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. You see that last bit? The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Those who have been oppressed and they didn't get justice, all those things, they will get their justice. They will no longer be oppressed. There will be a righteous judgment. And so God is known by the judgment he executes as being what? Just and fair and righteous and good. That's why, in verse 22 and 23, it says, Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. So the comfort comes in knowing that there will be perfect justice. The wicked will not get away with their wickedness and every wrong will one day be made right. That's the comfort that's talking about here. We all have an inbuilt desire to see justice done. I know that there's some things that really make my blood boil. You know, when kids get murdered and there's all kinds of wickedness that goes on. And the people, a lot of the time, are getting away with it. True? You know, it's actually illegal to kill your baby. So 
in God's eyes, that's probably right up there. And society legalizing homosexuality and all those kind of things, there will come a day when all those things will be judged. Justice will be served. We want to see justice done. It brings us comfort when we see justice done. We get anxious and angry when the wicked go unpunished or the innocent are punished wrongly. And so here God is saying that they would be satisfied and content that God had been fair in his treatment of the rebels in Jerusalem and Judah. Now, we go to the tribulation for a sec, go forward in time. Remember, the tribulation is God judging the world. And here is an example of God's judgments being fair and righteous. Revelation 16, 4-7 Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. They all became blood at this stage. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. It's fair. And I heard another voice from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So when God judges the earth in the tribulation, what are we going to be saying as we look at what God does? We're going to say, yeah, go for it, God. This brings me comfort. This brings me peace because I know that true and righteous are your judgments. That's their just due. That's what they deserve. So God, in these verses, is telling them that he will demonstrate to the nation of Israel and the surrounding nations that his judgments are true and righteous. So application for us, and you shall know that I have done nothing without cause, that I have done in it, that is in Jerusalem. Nothing without cause, nothing without a reason or a purpose. So the application here is, it's good to know that there is always a good reason or purpose for what God allows to happen to us. I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it. We can apply that to ourselves. I have done nothing in your life that doesn't have a cause, a good cause, a good reason, a good purpose. When I'm teaching maths and I ask them to do something and it's hard and they don't understand why, they go, but why? And they don't want to do it, you know. But then I explain the purpose of the exercise and most of them are quite willing to give it a go. We can apply this to the exiles in Babylon. They would have been wondering why God was so severe on those left in Jerusalem. But afterward, when they saw how evil and rebellious the evil remnant was, when they came out, remember the evil ones that came back out to the nations, when they saw how evil and wicked these people were, this evil remnant, they would understand and even be comforted because they knew that God knew what he was doing. A quote here, It would all take place in order to convince the exiles of God's justice that he had not brought about the destruction of Jerusalem without cause. Because remember, the destruction of Jerusalem was a big thing. That was a homeland. The temple was huge for the Jews. Why would God do that? Well, now we know. Now we know how wicked the people really were. There's an awesome quote here from a guy called Meyer. This is for us personally. 
We do not know the cause of so much that crushes us to the ground. But if we did know it as well as we shall know it some day, we should have no difficulty in reconciling God's dealings with his perfect love. So I'll say that again. Think about this. We do not know the cause of so much that crushes us to the ground. But if we did know it as well as we shall know it some day, we should have no difficulty in reconciling God's dealings with his perfect love. So in other words, we don't understand why we go through the trials now. But when we get there, on the other side, when you're in heaven, we're going to look back and say, that was an act of love, that was an act of love, that was good for me, yes. Everything in my life that God did, God allowed, was good for me. It's good, isn't it? We will have no difficulty reconciling God's dealing with his perfect love. But for now, it takes faith to believe that. For many of us, we can relate to the children of Israel in exile. We may be suffering for no fault of our own, and we are wondering why, and wondering if God really knows what he's doing. Is he really being just and fair? And is this really the best thing for me that he's allowing? We must trust that God has a plan for our lives and is very able to use this evil world to accomplish his good purposes and that God will keep his promise to us in Romans 8, 28 and 29. I'm going to read this from the Amplified Bible. It brings it out very nicely. We are assured and know that God, being a partner in the labor, all things work together and are fitting into a plan for good. Do you like that? All things work together and are fitting into a plan for good. God has a plan. It's not just random. Fitting into a plan for good to and for those who love God and are according to his design and purpose. For those he foreknew of whom he was aware and loved beforehand, he also destined from the beginning for ordaining them to be molded into the image of his son and share inwardly his likeness that he might become the firstborn among many brethren. This is the greatest thing that can happen to us, that we become like Christ. It's a privilege. It's beautiful. Now, application. Can we expect physical blessings under the new covenant? And why I'm going to this to finish off is because if we understand how God blessed his people, the Israelites, under the old covenant, we can better understand how he blesses his people, the church, under the new covenant. Now, was it always true that if you were obedient and faithful that you'd have a great life in the Old Testament? No. Okay. The whole, God will bless me if I obey and curse me if I don't, it doesn't work for individuals. A lot of the time. Okay? Just as God still does now, he uses trials and tribulations to prepare his servants for service. Think about David running away from Saul for 13 years running for his life. David, for most of that time, was faithful to be following the Lord and to be seeking God. He was a man after God's own heart. But his time of affliction was designed by God to prepare and equip him for when his time came to rule as king over the people. And there's lots of other examples. There's the prophets and many other righteous people who were often persecuted as they were faithful and obedient to God. Now, 
under the new covenant. It says in Ephesians 1.3, God has blessed us, that is the church, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So our blessings are where? And what are they? They're spiritual blessings and they're in heavenly places. They're not here and they're not physical. The church as a whole or individually does not experience the physical blessings and curses as described under the Old Covenant because the church is not a physical nation or kingdom like the people of Israel was back then and is again today. But rather the church is a spiritual kingdom. And you can see this really clearly when you look at Jesus' conversation with Pilate when he was being tried. John 18, 33 and 36 to 38. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, a bit of context. What did the Jews always want? A political saviour, right? Someone who would defeat the Romans. And so for Jesus to be proclaimed as king, he's putting himself in a lot of danger because what does a king want? Followers? What are they going to do? Rebel against the Romans? Okay, so have that in the back of your mind. Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests had delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. It says now. One day it will be, but for now it's not. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. He is a king of the kingdom, yeah? Of his kingdom. But where is it based in? It's the kingdom of heaven, yeah? For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Now in the context, what's he saying? He understands that Jesus is talking about a kingdom that is not of this world, and therefore his servants would not fight and cause yet another insurrection against the Roman government. A word of hope here, a bit of digression. Jesus one day will come back at his second coming. And as it says in Daniel 2, 44-45, he will set up his own kingdom, putting it into all human government. And when this happens, guess what? Us Christian underdogs, not so much in the Western world, but in most of the rest of the world, we're not the underdogs anymore. We'll be ruling and reigning with Christ. And then for eternity, the new heavens and the new earth that God will create. So, if our blessings are not physical or material, what kind of spiritual blessings do we get to enjoy? That's a tricky question because some of God's blessings are conditional and some are unconditional. Some are guaranteed and some depend on us. So God has boundaries, responsibilities. He has some responsibilities. And he's given us some responsibilities. Let's look at Israel to understand this. Some of the promises that God gave to Israel were unconditional. For example, they would always be God's people. And there would come a day when Jerusalem will be rebuilt 
and never destroy it again. Even if they disobeyed, it's unconditional. And you can read that in Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37. In contrast, some of the conditional blessings and cursings are what we have already read today in Ezekiel. The peace or war, food or famine, health or sickness, being overrun with wild beasts or not. So conditional on obedience, right? So in the New Covenant, some of the promises for the church are unconditional. They're based on God predestining us, that is, choosing in advance to receive some specific blessings. This means that all true believers receive or experience these blessings, regardless of how much they choose to love and obey God on a day-to-day basis. It's the destiny of every believer. God has determined that it will come to pass. And Romans 8, 28-30 tells us that God, by his foreknowledge, knew in advance who would choose him and predestined those he foreknew to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So, let's look at some of these unconditional promises and blessings that God has given to us under the new covenant. First, we have peace with God. We are justified by faith. We are no longer his enemies, Romans 5.1. We can go to the throne room at any time, yeah? Boldly to find strength in time of need. We are no longer his enemy. We have access by faith to the Lord. Justification. We are declared both not guilty and perfectly righteousness, as if we lived a perfect life. You can read Romans 3, 24 to chapter 4, verse 8. Sanctification. Another unconditional promise or blessing. God both starts and completes the process of our transformation from a sinner to practical perfection. There's lots of verses there you can look up. Philippians 1.6, for example. Glorification. We will receive our glorified bodies when Christ comes back for the church at the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15.35-56 and 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18. Adoption. We have been given full rights as God's adopted children. Romans 8.15, Galatians 4.5, Ephesians 1.5. Suffering and persecution, another unconditional promise. God promises that he will grow and mature us by allowing us to experience trials, temptations, and persecution in this life. And there's lots of verses on this too. 1 Timothy 3.12, Hebrews 2.10, 5.8, 12 verses 3-13, to and 1 Peter 5 verse 10. So, suffering and persecution is also another unconditional promise. But what goes along with that? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah? Hebrews 13.5. Now, some of the spiritual blessings that we, under the New Covenant, as the church, as the church, receive, which are unconditional, are the peace of God, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness, goodness and truth. What it means by conditional is that we only receive or experience them if we choose to love and obey God on a day-to-day basis. So, the first one I'll talk about is the peace of God. And this is the Calm assurance that God is in control, no matter what we are going through. You can see Philippians 4, 7-9 and Colossians 3.15. The fruit of the Spirit. It's only as I abide in Christ, allowing the Spirit to direct and empower my whole life, that I will bear the fruit of the Spirit. You know the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Colossians 5.16-26 is a good scripture to read. In Ephesians 5.9, it talks about the fruit of righteousness, goodness, and truth. And it says there that we only experience these things as we walk as children of light, 
finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Sounds like Romans 12, 1 and 2. Also, maturity. Maturity that comes from abiding in or studying the Word of God. This is something that is conditional. God wants us to mature, but he won't force us to mature. The mature Christian is skilled in the Word of God and is able, there's a few things that he can do or she can do, they are able to determine right from wrong, they are free from Satan's lies and deceptions, free from habitual sin, and able to experience the full benefits of their salvation. And there's a number of verses there. So, if I am experiencing the conditional blessings, I'm coming back to the children of Israel now, how did they know if they were walking with God or not as a nation? They'd look at their circumstances, and if it was good, well then God only blesses us if we're obedient, right? If it's bad, well, we must be doing something wrong. Let's find out what it is so we can get back into God's blessings, yeah? So, if I am experiencing the conditional blessings of the new covenant, then I know that I am in the will of God and am walking in fellowship with him and am abiding in his love. As Jesus says in John fifteen ten. if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. However, the opposite is also true. If I'm not experiencing these conditional spiritual blessings, but am instead grieving the Holy Spirit, then I must do two things. One, confess my sins to God. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1 9. And secondly, repent. And I'm going to read Revelation 3.19 from the Amplified Bible. Those whom I dearly and tenderly love, I tell their faults and convict and convince and reprove and chasten. I discipline and instruct them. So be enthusiastic and earnest and burning with zeal and repent. Changing your mind and attitude. So that's what God was doing with the children of Israel. He was faithful, in love, telling their faults, convicting them, and asking them to repent. I'll read that verse from Revelation 3.19 again. Those whom I dearly and tenderly love, I tell their faults and convict and convince and reprove and chasten. I discipline and instruct them. So be enthusiastic and in earnest and burning with zeal and repent, changing your mind and attitude. And if we do that, what will happen? We'll come back into those conditional blessings. We'll start to have that victory over sin. We'll start to have that abiding in the love of Christ. As Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Okay? So, just like the Israelites knew they had a physical blessing barometer <laughs> to know how much they were obeying God or disobeying, so do we. So have a look. Look these scriptures up and search your own hearts. Look at your own lives and what's going on in your heart. Do you have the peace of God? It's a fruit of the Spirit evident in your life. Are you studying the Word of God and becoming skilled? in using the Word of God to overcome Satan and the hold that he has on those who don't know the Word of God. Because we need the Word of God to live a life which is free. What does Jesus say? If you abide in my Word, you will be free. Yeah, I think it's John chapter 8. So let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done. 
Lord, everything you read in the Old Testament, we can use as a type or a picture or an illustration to help us understand who you are, that you are righteous and just in all your judgments, and that you have a plan, you don't do anything without a good reason or a cause. It has a good purpose. And Father, we just pray that you help us to have that faith in you that Ezekiel and Jeremiah were encouraging the people to have. Submit to God. Don't fight the circumstances. Trust him. This is an act of love. The world who's doing it to you is not doing it as an act of love, but God is allowing it as an act of love. It's going to have a good purpose, a good result. And the result is that we are conformed into the image of Christ, transformed by the renewing of our mind into the image of Christ. So Lord, I pray that you help us to trust you as we go through these sometimes severe trials. But Lord, we know that you're always right and we know that you're always fair. And that when we get to the other side, we'll know that everything you did was the right thing for us, the best thing for us. Help us to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I encourage you again, go through the notes because there's lots of other scriptures that will bring out or flash out a lot of the stuff we're talking about even more clearly. And I think it'll be a blessing 